0: I'm your host, Paul Wicker, and this is The PPC Show. This week's episode is totally different. We talked to the co-founder of AdStage, Jason Wu, he's the technical founder, and we basically learned his origin story. Why did he decide to get into the crazy entrepreneurship world? Little did he know he'd be running a successful startup five years later. So we learned a lot about those early days at AdStage, what it was like and some of those early products that have never seen the light of day. We record the PPC show most Tuesdays at 10 a.m. and you can find more episodes on SoundCloud and at times, iTunes. Enjoy the episode. So to start it started off before the, the audio was working and you said, have I ever heard about stories about the old days?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so even before AdStage Express, um, you know, when I first joined AdStage and I first joined, you know, Saul on this crazy journey, um, he was actually working with a couple of folks. I think they were interns at, um, at Trigger, his previous company. And so they were just trying to figure out a few ideas about how to create AdStage. Um, at the time, AdStage wasn't the, the ad management platform.
0: Let's start over. What? Did you practice this no. history? All right. So I first saw AdStage... When I was at Kenshu and you guys won launch, yeah, and you launched a platform that was like manage everything in one, and we were freaking out because we couldn't get Google and Facebook in the same interface, yeah. And you guys had all four networks in right. one, and we were convinced it was all just vapor. <laughs> and you you had a good designer somewhere that we tried to poach, um, but you definitely got on our radar. Did you really? Yeah, and then, but he's in the UK, yeah. So it was like not not a fit. Um, but yeah, we like somehow figured out who the designer was, and says, "Let's just go, you know, double their salary and take their designer." Wow. Um, but anyway, so that's how I learned about AdStage. And at the time, you were launching AdStage Express, yeah. which was like the all-in-one. Right, right. You know, Bob the plumber can create an ad, and it goes on <laughs> all five networks. Uh, but there's a story from before that. Yeah. Okay, now I'm interested. and we could have we could have this conversation. <laughs> there we go. So, um, so the even the name
1: AdStage has has a deeper meaning, right? So it's, it's called AdStage because the original idea was to try to stage your ads. It wasn't supposed to be this like, full ad management platform, it was supposed to be a tool where you could create you know, some creatives and some targeting across all these different networks, the four networks that we were supporting at the time, and you could just run tests basically. Right, that would lead to eventual campaigns that you could actually run. Mm-hmm. But the idea behind it was really to be able to help you allocate your budgets. Because that was a problem that Sahil was having at Trigger when he was a CMO there. right? So he was trying to figure out, you know, given all of these networks, um, Google and Bing were you know, more established, Facebook was up and coming, LinkedIn he was just trying to figure out how to use. right? Like, How does he actually figure out you know, where his ads are being the most effective and how to actually allocate budget across those different networks? So
0: and did you build any actual product?
1: We, we tried. So wireframes? <laughs> no, we did actually. Um, I actually have a few mocks, not, not even mocks. I have some product like screenshots that I can show you from back in the day. Wow. Um, so the first the very first product that Saho was working on, he was actually thinking through the idea with some interns at Trigger, right? So the original idea didn't work out that well. Um, they were trying to use genetic algorithms to, Um, basically over many generations of ads figure out, you know, the best copy and the best targeting and whatnot. But unless you have maybe three years, you know, like basically each day is kind of a data point, right? Unless you have like years of time and thousands of dollars to waste on potentially really terrible ads, um, it's not going to work that well, right? So we kind of threw away that idea um, when I came on board. And my idea was really, actually the idea that Saul and I came up with was really You know once someone links their accounts and tells us what their business is trying to accomplish let's figure out what their competitors are doing right
0: Uh, let me interrupt you so just so we can get the setting here how old are you at the time you built that first uh, genetic ad creation 22 all right and you were in in school
1: yeah so I was in I was in grad school at the time Um, that's actually a funny story too that I won't tangent into right now.
0: No, you shouldn't. This is all about the tangents. The tangents? Okay, You were at Carnegie Mellon. Yeah,
1: so I was at Carnegie Mellon, right? And um, so I was interested in two things in particular, security and machine learning, right? And so I, you know, mainly I focused on security because that was actually what my program was. Um, But I tried to incorporate some machine learning too, right? So funny enough, just on a whim, I decided to take an entrepreneurship class as well, in addition to all the CS classes I was taking. And so as part of this Class, one of my assignments was to interview an entrepreneur. And so I asked around my circle of friends, and uh, a good friend of mine, Nathan, actually in- introduced me to Sahil. I guess they met at some TechCrunch event. And um, basically, Sahil put me off for months, right? I was like, you know, I kept emailing him saying, like, I need to get this assignment done. And finally, I was just like, please, like, the assignment's due in a week. It, it was like Thanksgiving break. And I was like, please, I, need- I just need an interview, a quick interview. It'll be 30 minutes. I'll buy you a beer, right? Um, we didn't end up meeting in person, um, even though we were both in the Bay Area for you know, the break. I think he had something, some business to attend to. So I flew back to Carnegie Mellon, and like, basically the day that I flew back, um, I got a call with him. And it was pretty standard, I mean, I asked all the questions that I had, I filled out the assignment that I needed, and then he started asking me questions about myself. Right? And so I started telling him I'm actually an engineer, not an MBA candidate, like I thought. Which turns out to be the reason he actually was trying to push me off. He didn't want to talk to like another business guy, right? Um, he started pitching me on the idea for AdStage. I mean, he's always, you know, always closing, right? He's always the perfect sales guy. So he started pitching me on this idea, and honestly, I didn't know that much about digital advertising. I was always one of those guys who used AdBlock everywhere. I'd never even, you know, basically hadn't seen a Google ad for like years or Facebook ad for years. You
0: still are a guy that uses Adblock. <laughs>
1: only in one browser, right? When I work, you know, on Chrome, I I disabled it, but um, yeah. So you know, I basically took about a month to really learn all the tools that were out there, um, run some ad campaigns for previous startup ideas that I I'd had in the past that I had domains for as well, and uh, you know, realized took a look at like Marin and Kenshu and tools like that um, that were actually really difficult to sign up for and very expensive, and you know, decided to to you know, worked together with Sahil, um, flew back, chatted with him for a bit, um, you know, really got to make sure that we were compatible. Um, and then we started, immediately started ideation, um, working on demos, even in his free time when he was working at Trigger, he was like pitching, um, you know, pitching VCs whenever he could. And then, you know, basically I, I went back to school for Carnegie Mellon. Um, I went back for my, uh, I guess spring semester. And, uh, about April I think of that year I get a call from Saul and he's just like Jason you have to drop out right now I just quit my job we're going at this full time and I'm like okay I still have a few finals left let me finish these off Um, and then you know did that came back started working with him and then never went back to Carnegie Mellon I think I've still got like two credits left or something like one
0: class I need to finish the classic founder story um, wait, so there's a few things I want to ask about. One, what were these startup ideas that you had previously that you used this test?
1: <laughs> okay, so probably the main one that I used is a domain that I still own. It's called Stackons, And I was working on it with the guy who introduced me to Sahel, Nathan. Um, so it was this idea where we would basically, it was like a kind of local location-based coupon idea with like a loyalty program built in. So it benefited both sides, right? Both the um, like mom and pop shops.
0: We're already through the coupons yeah, stuff. I know, There's I like know. a million of those guys. I know, Good so we,
1: we applied or... we applied to YC, and it was like that one, um, one class where pretty much everyone had the same idea. <laughs> and so I don't think anyone, uh, maybe five stars got in to YC, I don't remember. Like someone got in, but we didn't, unfortunately.
0: But they were your original test account when you were trying to just make sure yeah. you could uh, get on board with this whole ad management idea. Yeah. Um, and how did you, like, you know, you're a pretty conservative guy, Yeah. right? And you went to Carnegie Mellon to study security. <laughs> so yeah. uh, you take one class on entrepreneurship and your life changes. I mean, when you were taking that class and when you met Sahel, did you ever really think this was going to be the outcome?
1: This, like five years down the road? Probably not.
0: Startup world, entrepreneurship, or I yeah. mean...
1: Yeah. I, honestly, I always knew that. So, um, you know, that's why I worked on so many ideas with my friends um, during, like, you know, early college through the end of college. We were just, like, constantly thinking about ideas, constantly trying to come up with some kind of market that we could address. And uh, I always knew that I would get into entrepreneurship. I always thought that I would go into a bigger company first. Um, and I really was passionate about security, so I wanted to get into, like, a bigger firm or maybe even the government and then eventually jump to you know some sort of security-based startup. Um, obviously, that didn't happen, but um, you know I'm I'm happy with the path that I took.
0: Well, judging from the security around here, you have plenty work. <laughs> <That's... laughs> yeah, I'm just kidding. If any customers are listening to this, everything's very secure. So secure, the most secure <laughs> ever. Great. Going to build a security wall. Keep all the bad bad guys out. That's right. Um, just got to make sure you have strong passwords, Paul. <laughs> we'll delete this part of the the interview (laughs) so you always wanted to be an entrepreneur because you were born and raised in the bay area Mm -hmm. right and like where did you get that bug from i don't
1: know honestly like when i was a lot younger um i i really wanted to i really wanted to become the cto of cisco which was the company that my dad worked at right so like you know i kind of idolized him and i really wanted to you know, join Cisco, rise up in the ranks, get to like the C-level or at least, you know, like VP of engineering or something like that, right? And then I got to Cisco. I started working there. I worked there for three and a half years, actually, and it was not at all what I expected. The bureaucracy just killed me. I couldn't deal with it. And so I like realized that, you know, really to be happy, I'd probably have to work in smaller companies. And of course, I'd want to start my own thing at some point.
0: Uh, well, you say that so matter of factly, like, you know, I'm an old man compared to you. So when I was your age in college it, no one thought about starting a company you went out and yeah. got a job with someone else uh, i grew up on the east coast you grew up yeah. you know pretty close to silicon valley so um, i wonder if well was that did everybody in your like high school class assume that they were going to go start a company is that what everyone wanted to do no
1: no definitely not it was like basically i, I do credit my friend nathan um with instilling a lot of that bug in me, um, I think you know he was always he always had you know dozens of ideas running at any given time, right? Um, and you know he really got me reading like TechCrunch, things like that. And I think you know really the idea started forming, and you know really the like, the idea of really doing my own thing started from
0: that. Nice, and now so here you are five years later, yeah, uh, co-founder of a successful growing startup. Um, I don't want to make this a commercial for AdStage, so we'll kind of <laughs> skip the present and then go to the future. So like 15 years from now, when AdSage is probably behind you in some yeah. way, shape, or form, you know, what do you see Jason Wu doing in the future?
1: I don't know, honestly. I mean, it's really hard to see even like two years into the future, um, let alone like 15. I think at some point I would love to get into VC um, to give back to other entrepreneurs as well. Um, And to, you know, not necessarily like to be involved in a lot of different ideas at the same time that you can't necessarily do as a founder, right? Um, So I'd love that or at least to, you know, be an advisor in a couple of um, startups, um, you know, just to help people out. And yeah, I mean, I, I find it really hard to think of myself going back to any kind of bigger company. So I'm sure it'll be kind of flipping between like advisor roles, VC, like doing my own thing, you know, starting another startup, possibly with style.
0: Um, so the big, <clears throat> so we need the big IPO exit. You make enough money <laughs> that you can then just be a VC full time, or you can just take bets on idiot kids like, <laughs> <laughs> like myself, like you were five years ago, <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, you have to sometimes imagine part of the the naivete. I'm going to say naivete that you had about the ad space at that age it was probably helpful, right? Oh,
1: absolutely. I mean, like, Saul and I talk about this all the time. If we were to do it again, if we knew what we knew today, there's no way we would have tried to bite off that much at the same time. To be able to build, like, it wasn't vaporware at the time that you saw such Express. Everything actually worked, right? We worked our asses off to try to build something that actually supported all four networks. And, like, we basically killed ourselves for a year to build that product. Um, it was extremely ambitious, and uh, I'm not sure I, we would do it again if we knew what we
0: knew today um i I feel like that's a common theme with startups is they they take these kind of very improbable you know uh, strategies that the more established companies would never do and then of course some of those turn out to be winners yeah so in this case hopefully ours is a winner yeah uh so let's well is there anything else from your background that we should dig into uh Well, I think, so before AdStage, you already told us about when it was literally staging your ads. Were there any other early versions of AdStage pre-Express?
1: Yeah, so, I don't, did I even get into the clustering part? Where we just had the anniversary where, you know, your children
0: are idiots and it took (laughs) 3,000 years, so yeah.
1: Yeah, so, um, yeah, so there was one other product that we were starting to build, um, and it was, you know, something that we took to a lot of investors and they seemed to really like, And, you know, I don't think we ever, like, we got a few customers on it as well. So let me describe the product a little bit. It was basically, the idea was that a customer would come in, um, you know, usually a newer SMB, um, just trying to figure out their digital marketing strategy. And they would basically give us, like, a blurb about themselves, um, a few keywords that were relevant to their business, and their URL. And we would scrape as much information as we could from their sites. And what we'd done in the background is actually... You know, utilize a few APIs that we had access to, like Crunchbase, um, SEM, Rush, Alexa, and, and a few others, um, where we were gathering just a ton of data about other companies, right? Like other startups, other more established companies, and whatnot. And we would basically cluster all of those different companies, and as soon as a new company linked and like, gave us their information, we would try to cluster them as well with the existing companies in our database, right? So, what that allowed us to do was actually be able to somewhat tell people you know, these are your competitors or these are people in a similar space and we were able to basically generate dashboards that would say, you know, your competitors are getting traffic from these different sources, right? Google, like, you know, 30% Google, uh, maybe 20% Facebook and, you know, some other sources and whatnot. Um, and the cool thing we were, was we were also able to suggest relevant ads and keywords um, that these competitors were running, right? Um, and, you know, in addition, I think we utilized a few other sources like Google's uh, keyword tool and Bing's keyword tool to also kind of offer suggestions and things like that. So it was really a, a great way to, to at least give you an idea of where you should be spending your money and, you know, what kind of copy was resonating, or at least what kind of copy um, other folks were using in the space.
0: At least that was the idea. That was the idea. Um, and again, there was a huge explosion in, let's uh, call competitive analysis tools yeah. uh, where I Think it's when Groupon and Living Social started like struggling with the core coupon model, mm-hmm. they moved to this like, hey, in addition to doing deals, you can also find out who around you is doing deals and what are they doing and when are they offering. And then there was all these like third party tools that would give you kind of these competitive analytics, yeah, similar to what you're talking about. Yeah. So I feel like you guys were very on trend, which yeah. is positive. It also makes me think like Man, all this machine learning crap we talk about now, uh, and you know, Watson commercials, Mm. and all this uh, kind of these acronyms that have become buzzwords. (laughs) Like we've been trying to make it applicable to everyday tech for like a decade. Yeah. Do you feel like things are now actually taking advantage of some of these like algos and uh, tools that are out there or are we still, is most of this stuff still kind of uh, fantasy?
1: I think we're getting closer for sure. Um, there's definitely been a lot of vaporware that we've seen in the market, right? Um, but I think, I mean, even thinking back to five years ago when you know, we were working on machine learning algorithms, right, it was such a hassle to actually bring up the infrastructure you needed, right? And you had to, you know, in a lot of ways, customize or even write your own algorithms for, these, you know, for the infrastructure that you were building, right? So for example, for the clustering algorithms that I was running, I had to bring up maybe 20 boxes on um, Amazon had to manage them, they were all using like Hadoop, Mahout, um, Lucene and a few other tools that were running on there. And um, it was just a lot of overhead, right, to manage. Um, And that's before you even start like experimenting, right. Um, And even, you know, then then kind of the tuning and all of that takes, who knows, months, right, Uh, weeks or months. Nowadays, it's a lot easier, right. Nowadays, folks like other startups have access to to a lot of really great tools that are out there. Um, you look at Amazon Machine Learning, IBM Watson, like you mentioned, um, Google Cloud Compute has, I forget what they call it. They, they have some kind of product that uh, wraps around TensorFlow. And um, even like Microsoft is getting into the game with like cognitive science or services or whatever. Um, so like all of these different tools where you don't have to manage your own infrastructure anymore, right? You basically just send in your data and you're able to you know tune it Um, kind of tune the parameters um, without actually having to manage the boxes yourselves and uh, you know having to write a lot of those algorithms right so for example we just had a hackathon here at AdStage and actually three of our teams used some of these services to build you know pretty compelling products or at least you know proofs of concept right one of them was um, eventually we built into a product called Ask AdStage, which just launched um, using Google's NLP at least the proof of concept was using Google's NLP to Try to you know parse natural language on Slack, and really return results. Um, you know return some useful information from our products. Right. Um, we had another called um, I think Autopilot, uh, which was trying to which actually used Amazon's machine learning tool to try to analyze CTR and conversion rates, and you know basically suggest if you should increase or decrease budgets for various campaigns. Um, and then we had one more which was called CTR Predictor, I think. And that one utilized TensorFlow. Um, And that was actually really, really interesting. Um, You know, the engineer who worked on that project um, had a really, really great kind of write-up about what he did. Um, And that was really to, you know, he basically fed in a bunch of text ads and sponsored updates from LinkedIn uh, and was able to, you know, basically based on the the training set and the validation set and the experimental set, um, was able to get pretty good results in terms of being able to predict CTR based on ad copy and different targeting. So I feel like we're at a point where you know folks can actually utilize these tools and build really interesting products without having to build all the infrastructure behind
0: it. Well, wow, so that's stuff people built in two or three days. Two or three days. Yeah, yeah. So imagine what people could do with a full sprint or two. Absolutely. So when are we getting our first machine learning app? <laughs> at
1: stage labs. That's the team I want to build.
0: Yes. Like spoken like a true CTO. <laughs> I am ready to work on labs and just do fun stuff. Um, the so you've been managing an edge team for five years now. I'd say it just had their five-year anniversary. Mm-hmm. For other startup founders that are on the technical side of the world, um, what is the advice you'd give them in terms of growing a team from, you know, two to thirty? Two to thirty. I
1: mean, you know, when you're when you're five folks, right? Process doesn't really matter. Everyone knows what everyone else is working on. Um, the important thing is that you have things like code review. Um, And, you know, at least kind of sanity checks, pair coding and whatnot to make sure that people aren't lost and people aren't blocked. Right. But as you scale um, from, you know, basically like 10 to 20, that's when you start feeling the most pain. Right. So it's important at that point to really start getting in some processes, Um, start getting in, you know, like maybe spitting, splitting up standups, having better planning and estimation, um, things like that become really, really important. Um, and those things you need to keep working on as you continue to scale. I think one thing that we've been really successful with here as well um, is having the engineers actually really involved in a lot of the product decisions, or at least in, in a lot, of, like getting a lot of feedback from customers. I think um, you've done a really good job of running like customer feedback sessions and things like that, um, and getting the engineers to really understand what the customers want. And how the customers use the tool, I think, is really critical. And I think that's been a big part of why our products, especially you know our reporting and automate products, where we've done a lot of that,
0: those types of feedback sessions, have been very successful. There's, um, I'm trying to think of the guy's name. Uh, you, you'll probably know of oh, Jason Freed, the Basecamp guy, mm-hmm. who's yeah. like. If the, if the engineering and VC community were like Republican and Democrat, he would be like the super left <laughs> winger because he's always like, count, the VCs are the super right you know, yeah. guys who are like, make money, work harder, and he's like the four day work weeks, let's all uh, you know, have a good work-life balance. Uh, so I've always find what he writes really interesting because it's usually very like counter to what kind of VCs and mm-hmm. the you know, Kobe Bryant works 70 hours a day on his jump shot um and ridiculous things like that anyway so i think it was him that was talking about this concept of you know basically letting trying to remove all the hierarchy from teams so they're all unified around what's the problem what's the solution and just letting them kind of organically build something um and at that stage really you know we i'm the only product person here Mm -hmm. and then um We have, I don't know, like 12 people on the engineering team or actually 12 engineers and the QA Mm -hmm. and all that. So obviously there's not enough kind of product resources to like, you know, produce really great wireframes and PRDs. So I don't, and I just battle someone's like, is it just that we need more product people and then it would be a better process or would that actually slow us down because it's going to create this like layer between the customer and the people Mm -hmm. actually building the tech that's going to remove that responsibility from the engineering team. Right. And the, and some engineers love customers and love interactions. Some hate it. So the mm-hmm. ones who hate it would probably be like great. I never have to a customer yeah. again. <laughs> just tell me what you think he wants or she wants. Um, so anyway, I'm just kind of thinking out loud because I always wonder is it like are we successful going down that path because we just ended up there and it's working so we don't want to change it? Or is it actually like this is a better way to build product and... We're actually doing what other companies will start to do more of, which is push more and more of the decisions to the team.
1: Yeah I'd, I'd honestly like to see that um, but it's also the case that different people you know have different work habits, right and have different abilities to really think about what the customer like you know really to put themselves in the shoes of the customer right So I think I think different teams are gonna need different levels of, of feedback from products.
0: yeah, I mean, I'd like to think I've been in the stupid industry for like fifteen years, so I like to think I know something that you know you can't just learn from a customer in ten yeah. minutes, uh, and it takes a lot of time and, and you know commitment to dealing with uh, you know interfacing with customers that often. But on the flip side, sometimes I think we make it too. Not we, meaning at stage, but in general, like, the software community makes too big of a deal about personas and providing, like, a thousand use cases when there's, like, obvious things that need to get done, that if you just yeah. kind of get rid of all that and focus everybody on the obvious stuff and then, like, incrementally build, those things don't seem like you need, like, a degree in, you know, uh, advertising to, to understand. Right. But anyway, I digress. Uh, I wanted to ask you a question before that I forgot sure. to when you were talking about the early days... Um, But also, again, for people who are maybe starting their own thing, um, investors. So you mentioned sales you know, a great salesperson, also a very good kind of fundraiser. But what roles did you play in the early days in actually fundraising or demos or, uh, I don't know, what did you do in the early days for fundraising?
1: Yeah, a lot of it was, you know, I was definitely heads down building demos a lot, right? Um, I was basically, I remember when, when I first moved back from Carnegie Mellon, I actually just lived at Sawhill's apartment in Berkeley um, for two weeks and really just built kind of the initial ad staging product that I was talking about, right? Um, like the machine learning piece and, you know, the, the dashboards that kind of showed you your, your insights and whatnot. And, um, you know, every day he would go out to fundraise, and then every night he would come back and he'd play video games while I was still working. <laughs> so that was what, kind of my, my role. What um, video game? Some MMORPG. I remember for a while we were playing some Star Wars MMORPG, but that faded pretty quickly. I thought it was going to
0: be Counter-Strike, which would be kind of a cool game. But if it's an MMORPG, those get pretty nerdy. Yeah. So we could use this against Sahil, (laughs) because he's super cool these days. But if it was like World of Warcraft or something. Well, he loves World of Warcraft. Oh, this is great. I... We can talk later. Do you remember what his character was? I don't. He also
1: used to play a lot of Halo, too. So that's at least a little cooler. Yeah,
0: Halo's much cooler than World of Warcraft. But, like... Wow, well, let's guess. What do you think his character in Warcraft was?
1: I've never played World of Warcraft, so I you can't even... Neither have it. I, but
0: only because everybody tells me it's the most addictive game ever, and it's uh, something I don't need in my life. But yeah. we can guess. I mean, there's probably elves and warriors and yeah. you know, wizards and, you know, druids and mages and all that <laughs> crap. It's the same, you know, yeah, J.R.R. Much. token yeah. uh, paradigm. All these things are written, and so he's got to be like a... He's like a dark elf. Are there dark elves in World of Warcraft? It's definitely him. He's a dark elf archer.
1: Sounds, sounds about right. Like a sure, ranger, see,
0: archer, dark elf with a little bit of spellcasting in there. <laughs> Probably riding like a, a warthog. Because <laughs> <laughs> Whenever I saw commercials, they're always riding things. Yeah. Uh, all right. Okay. Come on, what's your guess? Just throw any. Psychiatry sure. Yeah, I, that's uh,
1: your your guess. Sounds great. You? you can't just agree with my <laughs> guess. You need your own guess. That's exactly what I was thinking. It's uh, you know, great minds think alike, right, Paul? Oh.
0: Man, you engineers, no creativity. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, so, what was I going to ask you? Now, all I can think about is uh, Saho playing World of Warcraft while you're in the back, you know, doing uh, machine learning algorithms. Um, so. We were talking about machine learning, right. We built a Slack app. Um, There's a bunch of people talking about Messenger bots, AI, Mm -hmm. Um, will we even need UI anymore? So, I mean, what would you think if we actually got rid of all of AdStage and all we did was move data around and work on machine learning algos to go push data into Excel and Slack and Facebook Messenger and wherever else people are gonna communicate?
1: I don't know. I have a hard time seeing that. Like, I definitely, you know, I personally like the personal assistance that we have these days, right? And um, it's, it's been interesting seeing like the rise of chatbots and whatnot. I, at the end of the day, I still think that advertisers need a place where they can see all of their data and you know, have the tools to analyze that data. So I have a hard time imagining actually doing away with you know, the dashboards and things that we have. I just, I'm not sure my mind is there yet.
0: I'm with you. Uh, although, if it was a VR dashboard, that'd be better. Yes. I mean, you could have infinite screens of AdStage. There's got to be a company doing that now, right? Like, you know, VR dashboarding? Yeah. Why don't we send them some data and get our first <laughs> AdStage virtual reality report room. Walk into the room of your performance. It's not a bad idea. AdStage, coming Q4, 2017. <laughs> um, what about privacy? So you have a background in security. Yeah. And. Let's just say the marketing world right now is not known for the way they respect the privacy of consumers. Do you ever have trouble sleeping at night thinking that uh, you're helping an industry that is our professional creepers? I'm starting to get
1: there, especially with the rise of you know the Internet of Things, where you know basically everyone's going to have to encounter cross-screen advertising, right? Um, you know you're going to see ads on your computer, on your tablet, on your phone. I mean, even on like some of the newer like fridges, right? So like you're gonna see ads across all these different devices, and it's no longer just about cooking, right? Which is, you know, something that I had to make peace with a long time ago, right? Now it's really about using your personally identifiable information to track you across these different devices. So that honestly does keep me awake at night sometimes. Um, I'm not sure how I feel about that still. I have a little bit of hope because of the EU's like general data privacy regulations. I feel like, you know, now that they're requiring, um, you know, there's a few stricter requirements, right? Like customers have to opt in for tracking across these different devices. Browsers have to ask if you actually want to allow tracking to like, you know, be retargeted by ads, right? I have hoped that Google and Facebook will make changes. Um, and, you know, as well as like other, you know, other um, publishers and whatnot, will make changes to actually support stronger privacy. Um, unfortunately, at the same time, you know, Our president just did strike down FCC regulations to, um, you know, basically prevent ISPs from selling your data, um, like health, financial, and publishing and and tracking data um, for ads. So, I don't know. It's kind of a mixed bag right now. I'm hoping to see it play out
0: in the next year, two years. And your examples were very 2010 about cross-device being tablet, phone, uh, and and computer or desktop. If you think about uh, Alexa now actually yeah. has ads yeah. and um, you know there's in-game advertising so like VR I games mean, yeah. and VR experiences have ads on them so we're, we're almost there where ads are just on everything yeah um, and but I wonder honestly if you add a bunch of opt-ins to some long terms and conditions so before I sign up for my my new you know VR video game or mm-hmm. um, I don't know some new like uh, smart home nest device There's going to be a giant list of terms and conditions, and one of them is going to say, we may use your data to target you. And people are just going to click it, except like one or two privacy nuts is going to be like, you know, I'm not going to get the nest. So do you think that's really going to, like all this regulation is really going to stop consumers, or is it just, it's too convenient because that's what fuels the advertising companies, which is what sells product, which is what, you know, moves the world around these days? Yeah.
1: I don't know. I mean, I'm hoping that regulation becomes stricter to the point where you actually have to, you know, opt in in some obvious way, right? Like some checkbox or something like that. At the same time, I don't know. I mean, I feel like the younger generation is more okay with a lot of their personally identifiable information being out there. Um, you know, basically with Snapchat, with all these other you know social networks, I feel like, you know, more and more of them are purposefully giving up their privacy um, to share with their friends Um, and at the same time like they might actually not object to some of the advertising experiences that they're they're getting right so maybe it's not a huge deal I'm still I'm still having a little bit of a difficult time accepting it myself
0: yeah I don't know the right answer but it is There is a seemingly war on advertising and marketing because it's so like in your face now, but if you think about the history of consumerism, it's driven by advertising products to people. I mean, the very first newspapers had (laughs) advertisements in them. The radio had advertisements, the TV had, you know, any media was filled with advertisements and that was kind of the price you paid, Mm -hmm. you know, to get media and that continues to be the case. It's just now targeted, which, you know, marketers will argue will help you because now you don't have to look at you know commercials for uh, a football team if you hate football it's true or yeah. something like that so there's always that like we're actually making your life easier so be happy we're creeping you non-stop
1: yeah I know I mean like the, the goal of advertising really is to create like unobtrusive ads that actually provide value and like encourage you to purchase a product that you'd want anyway right or that you know that you you're
0: likely to want maybe that's the altruistic way of phrasing it i think it's (laughs) to make you want the product i mean we all know advertising is built on the principles of uh you know motivating a buyer to buy a product and there's different ways to motivate people all psychology right Uh, and i've never seen marketers be shy to use any psychological tactic they can find if that's what sells whether it's making people feel inadequate, or making people feel like uh, you know, they need to buy a product in order to keep up with everybody else, or false claims about how great a product is. Uh, I don't have high hopes that uh, that's the reason. Like, we're, we're gonna make, give you more value in The content, so you can make more informed decisions. That's like kind of an afterthought. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. That's the story I tell myself to, to get sleep at night. Yeah, well, look what the president we elected, right? Like, <laughs> we just want to hear easy things about things and then to just do them, as like as is species, right? Yeah. So if people are like, you know, hey, I'll build a wall and it will solve our immigration problems. There's a certain segment of people are just like, okay. And they probably know none of that can really happen, but, like, it's just easier to find. I'm going to buy this weight loss pill, and I'm going to lose weight in the back of my mind. I know it's probably not going to work, but it appeals to all the right parts of me in this moment of, you know, I really need to lose weight, so it works, Um, which is why I think I'm less uh, creeped out about it in some ways, because I kind of feel like that's how marketing advertising has worked forever. Mm -hmm. And it's also, and it's like a capitalistic argument about, like, it's a motivation that Uh, drives people to action that's like so part of like our species right now that it's hard to imagine us changing that behavior so you might as well accept it and then learn to try to keep it as like benevolent as possible this turned super philosophical (laughs) do you agree you do do? great (laughs) Um, yeah let's just talk about capitalism what else? Is there anything else people should know about the founder, co-founder of AdStage? You're a diehard Golden State Warriors fan. Yes, I am. Which yeah. is very easy to be right now as they're en route to win, knock on wood, their next championship.
1: I, I mean, I remember the Baron Davis days, you know, when, when tickets were like 20 bucks. So uh, it's it's been a hard decade, basically. Um, it's, it's been good to see the success in the last few years.
0: I'm a Knicks fan, so whatever. I haven't seen success since the 1990s, and even then, it was moderate.
1: Well, I am sorry for
0: you, Paul. Yes. Uh, That's why I've become a a Golden State fan in the Western Conference. In the Eastern Conference, I'm a Knicks fan. Yeah. Um, Is there anything else people should know about about you? We know your favorite prime number is three. That's the most important thing. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. (laughs) All right, well, thanks for this weird... (laughs) Uh, episode of pbc show where we didn't talk about pbc we just talked about uh jason but it was interesting i learned a lot yeah it was
1: great talking to you too
0: all right see you later